Welcome to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast at the American Centrum in Hamburg. I'm your host, Andrew Sola. Today we'll be looking ahead to Europe and the United States in 2024 and offering predictions and prognostications about the future. We'll probably be wrong. However, no matter what we predict about the future of the world, I am 100% certain about one thing. 2024 will be a great year to be alive. We will witness world historical events unfolding before our eyes. But it will also be a stressful year. The wars in Ukraine and the Middle East will continue. You will read stories about death and destruction, disorder and disruption. And of course, the presidential elections in the U.S. will be chaotic and frustrating, even infuriating. So I'm going to start this episode by asking all of you to make a New Year's resolution for yourselves. It's one that I've already made for myself. As you are coping with the stress and frustration, remind yourself that you are living during a year that will be remembered in the history books as one of the most important years of the post-World War II world. And then remind yourself to be happy that you are alive to experience it. Enjoy the ride. Here with me to talk about the wild ride that will be 2024 is our resident EU expert, Dr. Gunter Donner. Happy New Year, Gunter. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for having me. We're going to discuss a number of issues that will affect the world in 2024, but the top three are immigration, the war in Ukraine, and the macroeconomic outlook. These issues will in turn affect the elections for the Russian president in March, the EU parliament in June, the East German regional elections in September, the US federal and presidential election in November, as well as the UK parliamentary elections, which have not yet been scheduled, but which must take place before the end of January 2025. But let's start with that first major topic, which will affect elections all over Europe and the US, which is immigration. The 27 members of the European Council just agreed to a new initiative to change its immigration rules. This agreement needs to be approved by the European Parliament and then the parliaments of the 27 member states, but it seems like it will be approved. So, Gunter, can you summarize those changes and maybe explain some of the controversy around these new immigration rules for the EU? Yes. Let me start with calling this a genuine breakthrough in EU politics regarding this topic, which has been a hot potato, politically speaking, ever since the uh, migration wave started way back in 2015. Until now, a common procedure, a common strategy has never been reached. And so this is a, a true breakthrough showing that the EU, even if under pressure, is able to finally able to, to present a commonplace solution accepted by all the member states. So what's it about? The first and foremost thing is a strict control and registration at the external border of the uh, European Union and not no waving through, no dripping of migrants from one country, the country of they first arrived at, 
Egypt uh, when entering the EU territory. It's mostly the same countries. Which countries? It's Italy, it's Greece, it's partly Malta. And now it's also Poland for a, with a different historic background. Let's face it again. Our migration legislation is quite old and was coined largely after the Second World War. It had never any chance to deal with the two mainstream mechanisms directing immigration and organizing it today, which is organized crime on the Mediterranean travel route and state, hostile state interference in order to destabilize the European countries from within. This is Putin and Lukashenko's activity. These two mainstreams have never been dealt with, neither in the uh, Geneva Convention or whatnot elsewhere, not even in our constitution. That was unforeseeable when that was put forth. Anyway, now we have uh, agreement on strict control registration at the external borders. And there, there on spot, asylum seekers will have to live through their legal procedures, whether or not there is, uh, their application will be accepted or, or not. If they will be accepted, they will be, and that is the second thing, distributed throughout the EU according to a quota yet to be fine-tuned. If refused, they will have to leave the EU territory from where they arrived, not hiding in countries, not going to into other member states, they will have to leave the country and go back directly to the place where they came from. How this will evolve in reality remains to be seen. I see a number of problems arising, uh, namely those destroying their passports before entering the EU and telling you they don't know where they come from. But anyway, it's a milestone for EU consent. So, And the second thing, and that is probably as important, is the compulsory or obligatory mechanism of solidarity, as they call it in EU speak. That means that those countries mostly affected by uh, immigration, uh, the ones I named before, will have the, the, uh, a clear perspective that they can pass on those accepted granted asylum within the EU to other countries according to a quota. If they don't want to have them, they would have to pay into a whatever common coffer. This is a breakthrough in these two points, solidarity among EU member states and a common mechanism how to deal with the incoming asylum seekers. So what is now regarded, politically speaking, the Greens were, of course, opposed. The German Greens, Frau Baerbock, our foreign minister, she would have welcomed general exceptions for families and children. All this found no majority, so they had to, to, to step back. The Green Party has a clear problem with it because their stance had been and still is, they are very much pro-asylum. Judging on today's asylum problems with the same instruments and moral stance as when after the Second World War and during the, the, the Cold War, the asylum rules were coined in, in the member states and the, the tolerance of accepting and the general high-valued principles of granting asylum to those under political uh, distress in their home countries. It's very, very surprising to me that the Green Party 
swallowed the pill because it's contrary to their basic principles. For the other parties, it's less of a steep hurdle to climb over because under pressure from the extreme right and from the general public understanding, and let's face it, it's not just the extreme right, there is a strong, a vast majority against an unregulated immigration throughout Europe. And, and it has to be put into a certain order. If not, Europe would be held responsible for this with clearly far outweighing uh, negative effects. Overall, I think that, as you said, this decision and the general political consensus did come from basically the need of many parties somewhere in the middle to outflank the right on migration politics because it's proven to be the the winning theme for many parties in Europe. So seeming to be more strict on immigration seems to be the, the sensible political move. Whether or not it's morally good is another question. But the other important part of this story is countries like Italy have had a reasonable complaint that they bear a disproportionate amount of the burden of a dysfunctional EU immigration policy, and why shouldn't the rest of the member states pick up some of the slack and in some way, either through money or taking legal asylum seekers themselves, share that burden? You know, whenever the EU agrees to something, it's always a good thing for strengthening the EU community. But let's uh, move on to our second point here, because in France, Emmanuel Macron is under pressure because he forced through a change in French law regarding immigration, and one of his ministers resigned in protest. So what's going on then in France? It's a very interesting development. In Parliament, Macron has no majority. So his party is, is strong, but they have no majority. So he needs uh, help properly from the Gaullists. And in this case, he, he needed all the Gaullists because they forced him to, to strengthen this legislation. And parts of his party didn't follow. So his own majority is rather fragile. Okay, but Gunter, what was the legislation that led to the well, that was, mini that crisis? Was, yeah, that was amongst other, of course, it was the asylum regulation and it was the the right for families to be reunited after certain periods of time. And by reuniting families, you would, of course, increase the number of immigrants entering France uh, uh, substantially. And that was the basic thing, because the... Mm, this sounds uh, exactly like what happened in the Netherlands. <laughs> yes, but the With point the is... family the, reunification for us. Family reunification is, has been a, a bone of contention just due to the fact that in many instances, individual instances, of course, and one shouldn't overgeneralize them, the, the family relations, how will you prove them? Would you really believe a Syrian document issued by the Assad regime? Has this any value? Uh, how do you prove it? You make a, 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 gene, a genetic test with everyone? So all this was a hot debate in France. And France, of course, as we know, without the ongoing difficulties in the, in the Near East and the potential danger the French society is in with the high amount of North African immigrants uh, uh, and a certain socially based or politically based radicalization, whatever touches this balance 
is, is, is difficult. So Macron had to give in to the right, to, to, the, to the right, to do this. And I think in the end, he will benefit from it. It, it will change his party, I believe. But as long as his sole potential rival in 27, and that's a long way to go, will be Madame Le Pen and not a capable gaullist, uh, he still stands a fair chance to be re-elected, which would be a, a blessing for Europe. I mean, France in the hand of Madame Le Pen uh, uh, would be a disaster. All right, let's move on to the uh, final points now about immigration The United Kingdom, Italy, and Germany are all pursuing plans to outsource asylum seekers to so-called safe third countries. So the United Kingdom selected Rwanda, Italy is negotiating with Albania, and Germany will start exploring this option as well. So currently, as we just described, well, with these new EU-wide changes, asylum seekers have to be processed in their country of arrival at an external border of the EU. This solution, quote-unquote solution, means uh, immediately removing them to a safe third country for the processing. So this has caused quite the controversy, and it might bring down the government in the UK, who knows. Um, Italians seem to be happy with this as a solution, but Germany is starting to do it too. So what do you make of of this outsourcing of asylum seekers' claims to third-party countries. Is this a good solution or what? Well, uh, let's put two things apart. The UK, no longer part of the the European Union, is no longer subjected to accepting EU standardised procedures and, and, and rules. Who arrives at the UK shores directly from a country where he or she has been undergoing pressure deprivations of individual rights? This is not the case. You, I mean, I haven't heard anything about a line from North Africa to, to, to Hull where they hop off a ship or whatever and claim asylum. If that happens, the UK they all people, come. They come via boat from France. Yeah, and then there is no reason for asylum because... France is the epitome of a welfare state and rule of law, and they're they're certainly not under persecution in France. So how would you you legitimise the asylum application when coming from France to England? There is no no reason for this whatsoever. Uh, There is an explanation to my reading, which is very simple, because what you get on the dole in the UK is a far cry from what you get in France, uh, but you don't have to register. You can live there illegally. Yeah, once, once you enter Britain, you do not have to ever show It's like your, your country. Your, you your can just dive away anyone. and nobody knows where no. you are. And and you, you can easily do without uh, social aid because that's the, that's a ridiculous thing in the United Kingdom compared to France. And you do some black labor or whatever. But that is a different question because how could you ever be an asylum seeker leaving France for England? Uh, there is no reason whatsoever. So what the Brits do is they haven't found a solution that the French would stop people from crossing the channel. Why that hasn't been possible, I have no idea. So what would they do? Once in the U- UK, you don't get them anymore. They 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 disappear. So what that, what they have to do is they can either arrest them and put them in a, in a camp, which is highly debatable, on British soil. That 
opens probably f uh, further legal gateways forever to to drag along the process of deportation. But in the end, they will be deported because there is no reason from France to England and to claim I'm persecuted in France. Please give me asylum. Nobody believes that. So with Italy, it's a different story. The Italians are fed up with it. The government has a strong hand with this and they have to produce results because Italy has been affected by um, this type of immigration on the Mediterranean route. Uh, but what will they do? They will seek a non-EU member state country where they agree. Albania certainly makes more, to me, more sense than Rwanda. Uh, but Rwanda, whatever. Uh, would you really send Iranian Afghan refugees to Rwanda? What would they do there? Uh, this is a very difficult thing. So what Germany does, I'm not convinced that we, they will they will transfer them to to to, to Albania. I, I don't believe in this. Uh, it, it may be discussed, but if we now establish the tight border control practices, Germany is not directly affected. Very few coming over from Poland, which has been perfectly improved since we reintroduced border controls between Germany and Poland. But that, for EU standards, of course, is a step backwards because we love our freedom of movement within the mm -hmm. EU. This is a basic achievement. And if we end up in having to set up these strict controls, and if you now cross from Germany into Poland, and no, better not from Poland into Germany, you'd be amazed about the police and border guards. This is clearly a step backwards for the EU understanding of freedom of movement. Uh, but I don't see really, I don't see Germany and Germany's legislation producing that deportation to Albania. If this ever were to arise or to, to, renew, to, to, to be presented uh, as an EU uh, practice, this could be a different story. But just that the Germans sent people from the Polish border to Albania, I don't believe in this. Uh, for Italy, so, it's a different thing. Yeah, so so Germany, uh, you even though it's being explored officially, you don't think they'll uh, actually do it? I don't really believe it, no. Okay, so um, enough with immigration for now. Let's move on to the second big theme for the world, which is the mm -hmm. war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And we've probably all noticed that support for Ukraine is falling in the West. And Ukraine has suffered some very recent blows. First, the U.S. Congress, mainly Republicans, did not approve an additional aid package to Ukraine. Secondly, Viktor Orban, as we discussed last time, Gunter, you and I, Viktor Orban of Hungary vetoed plans for additional EU funding for Ukraine. Now, there are ways for individual EU countries to work around that objection, but it's still not good news for Ukraine that the two major blocks of support seems to be wavering. So, uh, Gunter, are there any bright spots on the horizon for Western support of Ukraine, or should we be worried? Well, of course, uh, as long as a war of that degree, brutality, and that amount of, of human losses and losses to a country rages on, one has a reason to be worried. But... Uh, I'm less pessimistic regarding Ukraine's present and future. Ukraine has achieved quite a lot, and we don't talk about it anymore. But let's face it, what, what has changed? The so-called long-anticipated Ukraine breakthrough, <laughs> I would have never believed in that. I mean, whatever they got from the West was half-hearted, 
and in many cases, top quality technical technical equipment, but too late and too slow. Production should have been switched from a pre-war self-deceit condition of we have no enemies left in the world, we just have friends, we love them all. Uh, this has been revealed as complete nonsense. Uh, Putin has been the same criminal and FSB tyrant he, he started with in 99, and there has been no change, just change in power and wealth to his benefit. So, uh, I mean, the Ukraine offensive was rather overrated in the West. Ukraine, until now, and that's an ongoing discussion, has never introduced compulsory military service. I mean, I... This is, this is one of the most important points that indeed. people seem to forget, <laughs> yes, which is completely. that as they criticize the lack of progress by the Ukrainian army, they also forget that 18 to 27-year-olds have never been conscripted. So there's a huge strategic reserve, which could presumably be called up in defense of the country if things got even worse. But I think one of the bright spots, if I'm looking at bright spots for Ukraine, obviously more aid is always a good thing if you're fighting a war, um, having a massive strategic reserve not called up, namely all these 18 to 27 year old men is extremely important. Mm. And uh, as long as they don't have to call them up, it's good news. The only historic incident I could compare this reluctance to introduce general conscription is what Britain did in 1914. They thought with the BEF in France, they would run over the German Kaiser. And that didn't happen. So in 1915, they introduced it. In those days, that, that, there was no alternative because there were no precision weapons. But that Ukraine withheld the Russian onslaught. No, destroyed the Russian strategy of running over the country. That seems to be completely forgotten. Putin, the aggressor, is now entrenched. And he's, he will be entrenched uh, half a year from now, wherever, but certainly not around Kiev. What do you make of the plans by the White House and some European countries, just plans right now, to seize the $300 billion in Russian assets that are held overseas? I think this has been overdue for, for a certain time. From the German legal point, it would require certain legal uh, changes in Germany because we, we uh, still consider uh, Russian uh, uh, Putin cronies uh, hiding their billions uh, in, in, in the EU to be uh, non-combatants. I would strictly support and favour. It, it's a part of the continuous swift we have to do, the change from a pre-war, self-deceiting, peace-oriented economy. We have to increase our readiness to, to react to the threat. Putin's onslaught against Ukraine represents for us, for NATO. It stands to reason that the Ukrainians are weakening the, the, the Russian armed forces to a degree that will stop Putin from ever, even if he, if whatever type of armistice were to be reached, to, to, to attack a NATO country in Europe. Uh, he is no longer able to do it. So the Ukrainians are fighting for our freedom from this dictator as well. And this seems to be forgotten every now and then. So we, what we should do is we should regularly confiscate all this, these assets. And for this, the legislation should be adapted. All right. Uh, let's move on then to some, I guess, the final issue that I think will be the most determinative for all the upcoming elections, which is the macroeconomic picture 
in the Europe. Uh, I'm sorry, in Europe and in the mm. U.S. And and it's not necessarily when I say the macroeconomic picture. It's mostly people's perceptions yeah. of the economy rather than the reality of the economy because people's perceptions of how they're doing often don't actually square with the reality. But anyway, as you look towards 2024, Gunter, do we think that the European and U.S. economies will be improving, stagnating? What are your major thoughts about the economy well, let's, let's start with Europe, if you so wish, because that, again, is different. Your growth will be higher than ours. That is normal. Your unemployment is much lower than ours. Uh, but that is normal as well, but for a variety of reasons, as I see it. So for for the EU, the growth forecast around about 1.3%, maybe 1.7 and 25 is that's for that's for, for for the European economy. At least it's back to growth. What is a very important figure is that the inflation a year ago in Europe it was around about 10 percent has been cut down to to whatever 2.9. That is a clear success of the European Central Bank, and it and it proves that their strategies, namely increasing rent and making things more expensive, borrowing money has been a clever tool to to decapitate this enormously dangerous inflation. One can't overrate the, the negative effect of inflation. If ever you have uh, contact with or talk to people living in high inflation countries, look at the Argentine or, or Turkey, it's a disaster for anybody reckoning in local currency. And it destroys, it destroys welfare and it destroys uh, social protection. So that is a, a silver lining on the horizon uh, it will be stronger in America. Much will depend on the outcome, I have to tell you, uh, on the outcome of the U.S. election. The more of a presented chaos will arrive in the world after the U.S. election with unpredictable political consequences. This remains to be seen. As, as China is concerned, uh, the Chinese growth is still quite considerate. It, it's around about 4%, but it won't increase much more and the Chinese have their own problems. As to unemployment, your unemployment is lower than ours but that is also due to that Americans tend to work and it, especially in Europe, in many parts of Europe, but it, it, Germany is a, a pattern book example, one has um, uh, increased social aid, one has renamed social aid to give it a more f fanciful name and increased in a, a juicy double-digit percentage uh, and reduced uh, methods of control and, and, and double-checking whether or not the individual is uh, entitled to cash it in. Uh, so this is contrary because uh, low-paid jobs, part-time jobs, which are very important in America, uh, no longer uh, seem to be attractive here. Uh, sitting at a teller in a supermarket here, uh, if you have the chance to have a good arrangement for your social aid, the new style, as from January, uh, what you gain is probably 250 short, euros a month. In short, what you're saying is it's probably better to stay on the dole than, than get a job in Germany, and that's affecting the economy. Okay, It, it depends but, on the job, yes, please. And, right. and, and of course, it's for those, and, and we have it, uh, if you add the dole and enrich it by black labor, you're fine. Mm -hmm. And that is not the right signal to, 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 to flag 
in a situation like this. You see uh, recruitment offers on every corner in German cities. I actually, I just checked the stats from the German um, statistics agency. Uh, there are 845,000 open jobs in mm -hmm. Germany right now mm -hmm. that are mm -hmm. not filled, which uh, is interesting. That's always been the case, which also lets us see that potentially the, the political issue about immigration isn't really clearly thought out or communicated by experts to the public. But if there are 845,000 open jobs in Germany that aren't filled, maybe immigrants could fill some of them. But now we're getting into other political issues. Mm -hmm. So let's now just jump into our last five topics and we'll just kind of do a rapid fire on the five important elections coming up in the world in 2024. And let's start with the most obvious one, with the clearest winner. I'm betting the house on... Putin winning the Russian elections in March. What do you think? Uh, well, the Russian election is a bogus sham. You would vote for anybody uh, uh, with the option of, if unless you wish to have a, a nightly visit by the FSB. Uh, uh, I mean, this is a joke, but part of the post-Stalinist era, such elections even were, were, were held uh, in, 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 in despotic systems to camouflage and to win propaganda. We live in a mediatic world, and 80 years back in time, this was necessary. Who f would follow any election? Who would read a newspaper? Now we, we, we live in a media area that's dominated by whatever news, uh, and, and it sounds so nice that the Russians have an election, and he, he is reluctant, shall I run again? And all this is, is a farce. It's really uh, <laughs> just ridiculous. It goes to show how strong his control of the public opinion, because whoever opposes uh, uh, will be uh, will be in difficulty. And, and like Navalny gets shipped uh, to, to, to even to, even to, worse to northern northern East Siberia. It's a very pleasant environment, especially <laughs> okay. in winter. All right, so uh, we've got on our victory board. We've got one V Putin winning in Russia. Oh yeah. So our second. Elections will be the EU parliamentary mm -hmm. elections in June. So again, we talked about the European Council last time being the 27 heads of state of the 27 European countries. Mm -hmm. We, of course, know that there is a European Commission, which is the executive mm -hmm. branch. And now we also have the EU Parliament. So explain mm -hmm. what the EU Parliament's role is in the complicated system yes. of the European well, Union. It started in the end of the 70s with no no power whatsoever. It was a it was a, a decoration, an ornament for the wall. But that has changed enormously. As you know, the EU has evolved through treaties. Very, very difficult process, time-consuming uh, to an enormous, enormous extent because the unanimity has to be reached. And uh, in the end, treaty by treaty, the European Parliament was given more power. So they can now they have to consent, they have to rule, they can uh, uh, make suggestions, which in former times was impossible. Where they are still rather a lame duck is in terms of appointing EU top functionaries. They can consent, but they have no right to suggest and to propose, which is ridiculous. But that is due to the treaties as well. And the member states, of course, don't wish to part with power, though they had been forced to do so. 
summing up, the European Parliament has changed the reality of, of legislation uh, uh, in the EU enormously. And one shouldn't underrate uh, the influence. They have been marked by that a, a German uh, centre conservative isn't the same as in former times a Brit or a Frenchman, and uh, um, that their fractions in Parliament are united by political convictions. That is very rough. So there is a huge difference between um, a socialist from X country and a social democrat from Germany or so. Let's face it, that doesn't make it easier. The majority now is uh, uh, one within the centre-right uh, 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 camp. And this, as I see it, will uh, increase. The European election in former times wasn't much taken care of in Germany with a rather low degree of participation. That might change a bit, at, at least the figures, because for the change a year ago, the Germans decided that now you can vote there as at, uh, 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 at 16 years of age. I don't think this is a very reasonable solution because at the national level it's impossible and will never happen because it requires a change in constitution. With the EP it's possible and they did it. What That was a hobby horse of the left and green movement because they hoped in 2019 when they started this debate a higher participation, the, the young people were there with the Fridays for Future and all these movements, and they thought this is now the breakthrough for whatever. Uh, all these topics have now come down on the agenda of priorities and uh, wait and see what that will bring. So, uh, um, Poles see uh, a massive, strong centre-right CDU in Germany, the Liberals in, par in the European Parliament, uh, there is no threshold in Germany still, though they thought <laughs> they thought we would change a threshold. We once had a 5%, that was declared unconstitutional, so now we have none. Uh, by 29, it should be reinstituted. Well, but okay. we will Good see to... a, a rather low degree of participation with a rather strong outcome. Okay, so um, why don't people vote for the EU Parliament then? I can tell you because they don't know anybody there. You, you never listen to a speech of your Member of Parliament. You don't even know who that is because you, they have no constituencies. The parties in Germany get votes and they disperse the people according to their interior preferences. Uh, do, the do, do, these direct... EU, do these EU parliamentarians get a healthy stipend to represent? Oh, it's lovely. You would okay. be happy about it. Me too. <laughs> so is this one of the things you think should be reformed? Well, no. I think uh, let them be paid well. I have nothing against it. I mean, all the corruption scandals, you have corruption scandals wherever even in the American uh, Senate, in our parliament, in the European parliament. Corruption is there because it's part of human frailty. But uh, let's face it, we need more direct touch to your European representative. Uh, I know them because I used to work there for 30 years. I know, even though the many of the guys still there now when I sit at home, but who knows it? And, and I remember in former years when I had, public discussions about that. I asked people, hands up, who knows his or her representative? That was less than 10%. That was a lot. Let's move on to our 
third set of elections, which will be those probably next year, not scheduled yet in the United Kingdom. So are the Tories finished? For those of you who follow British news, the Tories have lost a whole, the Conservatives have lost a whole number of midterm, as it were, elections, by-elections. And it looks like the Labour Party in most polling is 15, 20, 25 points ahead of the Conservatives. So do you think the Tories are finished? Is there anything Rishi can do, the Prime Minister, to turn around the fortunes of the Conservatives? Uh, it's very difficult because the, the, the last years of Conservative rule certainly haven't been a blessing. Yes, I, I think uh, it doesn't look very good for the Tories. That doesn't mean that British problems will be solved because the Labour Party, to me, appears to be split at the base. And we can see this in many, many uh, fields, none more so than the treatment of the Palestinian-Israeli ongoing war. Uh, what's, what's going on there, to me, is quite shocking. Um, the Labour Party basis, I mean, don't forget when Boris Johnson had his landslide victory over the Corbyn, guy there, who was to me a communist, socialist or whatever, radical. Things were looking differently. But now what the Conservative Party has come up with in terms of solutions, attempts, failures, is just so embarrassing that I don't, I don't see them winning this election. Though I have to admit, I think Sunak does a good job compared to his predecessors, including Boris Johnson, who was almost as intolerable as Trump. Uh, uh, I think he's doing quite yeah, a good job. If all your predecessors were clowns, it's easy to be good. Yeah, but okay. I mean, it goes to show <laughs> who has an interior majority. And if we know as some things and that binds America and the United Kingdom together, some particular features of the uh, um, legal system are somewhat outdated. So the Conservative Party could rename a new prime minister from their small membership circles. There was no new need in Parliament. There was no new need to, to have a new election. Nothing. Uh, uh, this wouldn't happen here in Germany. Uh, and uh, this is as ridiculous as employing uh, a legislation to use armed forces against migrants from 1798, what has been suggested in America recently. Uh, I see uh, a Labour winning, but the Labour Party to me is far from being united. And what which course they are going to pick so re, re, reuniting Europe is nonsense. And there's never been a strong Labour favour for the EU. Let's not forget this. Brexit had been, would have been impossible had Labour taken a firm stance. They That's did true. not. What they can end up is cutting the United Kingdom into small cells by giving uh, Scotland a so-called independence on political terms only because economically it's impossible. I don't know whether they are... Uh, they, they will uh, abort on that bandwagon. Uh, I have no idea what they are going to do. One thing is ruled out. They increase the welfare state, but with what money? Uh, they would have to first to fix the economy, and Labour fixing the economy has just worked once, and that was Tony Blair, still a great favourite, a, a, a politician I favoured very much. When I was there and young in the 60s, Labour was the, the undertaker of the English economy. All right. So moving on to our penultimate elections, there will be three regional elections in Germany and all in the East, Saxony, uh, Thuringia and Brandenburg. And the reason why I wanted to talk about these for a little bit is always the 
East German elections reveal the strength of the far-right party in Germany and also are sort of a barometer or a measure of how far-right issues are seen throughout Europe as a whole. So that's why we want to look at these elections, which will be in September, is that yes, correct? Yes, two, two on mm-hmm. September 1st and, and the one in Brandenburg on in the end of September 27th. So do you think we're going to see more far-right AFD victories in the east of Germany? Uh, you better believe it. We may be disagreeably surprised. And there are a few explanations. The extreme right is already firmly established in all three states, German states, so to speak. No place more so than in Thuringia, where it's the hottest of the extreme right and has been declared by the uh, Secret Service as an established extreme right movement, especially their top candidate uh, uh, openly being brought in connection with the pro-Nazi attitude. Why now Thuringia? Thuringia is a not very prosperous part of eastern Germany. It's very beautiful, but it's quite a bit backward, with the ex- exception of a few bigger cities. They are flourishing. And there you will see different electoral results. But in the, in the, uh, uh, in the country as such, I expect a very, very strong. Probably they will, they will land on number one. The same may be true in Saxony, which is a far wealthier the state than Thuringia. It's highly talked about. It's, it's very touristical, it's very industrialized and all that. But it goes to show that the established parties already, I mean, they 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 still rule in very, very awkward coalitions. So in Brandenburg, you see an SPD, CDU and Green coalition. So that is already has already been on the brink of uh, all parties against the extreme right. There are a few open questions. There is a new diluted uh, left party by a rather prominent uh, uh, lady from the former left party who hopped off and made her own thing. Uh, She she has adapted many uh, uh, suggestions and propositions from the far right. I have no idea how how she will will uh, uh, manage that. She may take a few percentage points away from the extreme right, but that is still has to be seen because there is no, there is nothing to build this statement on. Uh, I expect a very difficult formations of government at times. The other parties, with the exception of the of the of the uh, extreme right, will have to be forced to form an, uh, some kind of an emergency coalition that weakens democracy in those states, and of course it has negative implications for for the federal government. There is a pro-nostalgic movement, pro-GDR, which has turned out to now to be pro-Putin during the war. There is much, uh, probably much Putin influence uh, in certain conspiracy theoretic, uh, conspiracy theories spreading movements during the pandemic. All this adds together and the rather incompetent legislation from our federal government. These elections also serve to punish the federal government, of course. The very unpopular federal government. They're extremely unpopular and they have, it's not because they are, they're just confronted people with legislation and attempts at legislation, which they then reformed and reshaped and nobody knows 
what now really is uh, in the offing, they are to blame. And I think the coalition in, in Berlin uh, will last out. I don't expect them to break apart because general elections at national level now would be suicidal for all three parties involved. Right. So uh, we'll look at Saxony, Thuringia and Brandenburg to see the extent of the slide away from centrist politics. And uh, that'll be really interesting. Let me add one thing. I mean, just for for, 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 for decency. It's not that East Germans are per se born neo-Nazis. That is nonsense. But they are more petit bourgeois. They are more into it. What does it help me? Me. And they are very distrustful of, of governments. That is probably a leftover from the old ex-GDR. There is a, a core movement of devoted neo-fascists, but this is probably half of the percentage figures. I, I have no clue. But there is a vote of protest against that is what they force me to do, and I hate it. And if you tell somebody who drives 100 kilometers every day to and from his job, with his car, because there is no feasible public transport, that now your tax-deductible mileage will be cut off or your petrol prices increase by whatever. These people are not rich. They are hardworking. They they want to work. There is less uh, social welfare queen existence in East Germany than in many parts of West Germany. But they want to protest. We don't know for sure how far this will go. So we wait and see what happens. Uh, so will, so the, the, the AFD, what you're saying is the AFD is not only the party of the far right, but it's the easy outlet for anyone who's generally dis- dissatisfied. I mean, you know, it's the place you want to vote, you, you, even even though you might not actually espouse their right, far right from ideas. From your country, you know what political general dissatisfaction is. And, I and don't care. I'm, I'm sitting gonna, in Montana, what's happening in Washington? I wish to have Gunter, a life in Montana. This is this is the way we explain our final topic for today: the mother of all elections, the U.S. elections in yep. November. And again, Trump has been very successful in mobilizing people who have a general uh, dissatisfaction with the way Washington is run. And he uses this to great political advantage. And this explains some of his great appeal, not only for people in Montana, but to working people all over the country. So, uh, Gunter, final topic for today. Do you want to make first any predictions about who's going to be president after the elections? It's very difficult. Let me start with, as a foreigner, of course, the American electorate has the right to vote for anybody they prefer. This is the right of democracy. So it's not a European, Brit or German or whatever uh, to tell them you idiots have to vote for this guy because we prefer him. This would be highly counterproductive. So what I think is it happens what it happens. Uh, I'm a bit baffled uh, by many of the American uh, regulations in, in politics. They are so different from ours. A person such as Trump would have never been voted for as a as a local mayor of a village, even in eastern Germany. But he has, to me, reflagged the Republican Party I remember from the 70s and the, the, the Reagan years. He has reflagged them totally. Maybe many of the members haven't noticed, others maybe don't care. 
and new members have entered who love it. Uh, this has to be accepted because it's, um, it's a change uh, and the party isn't the same anymore to my reading. What the Democrats um, have been doing, I think the Biden politics have been quite successful. You've cut down inflation. Your, your labor market is okay. Gas prices have, <laughs> compared to ours, they are just, a, I would be happy to pay uh, uh, what you pay. The Democratic Party isn't that united. And I'm not so sure that the Democrats will unite behind Biden. Let's face it, Trump has a fair chance. From everything you said, I think we need to focus just on one thing. If the two candidates, whoever they might be, will have to deal with deep divisions within American society, mm -hmm. but more importantly, within their own parties, and the candidate who's best able to get people off their butts into the polling booths to vote for them will be the winner. And that's always been the case. So the balancing mm -hmm. act that Trump will have to pull off or that Biden will have to pull off will be speaking to enough people of a potential coalition to make sure that they get off their butts and get to the get to voting. And I don't know, can Biden bring together the coalition he had four years ago, which pushed him over the winning threshold in a number of swing states? I don't know. Will Trump be able to mobilize new voters? Mm, I don't know. People have kind of made up their minds. Have there been enough new voters enrolled in the last four years to significantly change the numbers from four years ago? Mm, I don't know. So I guess we can I, I'll be, make a final be, point and then we have to end. Gunter. But let me, let me close with a positive thing. Okay. I mean, whatever... Go, may go wrong in America or may go awkward. It goes to show that Europe cannot continue the same way and follow the same path it had been doing for the last decades. And I think we, we can see the first changes from von der Leyen started geopolitical considerations as part of the EU politics, hitherto completely unknown, that Europe in the end and that is my belief, will have to strengthen its unity and to rearm. And also, and this is maybe deplorable, but necessary, consider the uh, introduction of uh, massive strategic nuclear armament. Uh, we have to be independent from whatever will be thought out in America. I thought, I thought Gunther, America you wanted to end on a positive note, and you're talking about Europe yes, having but a the, nuclear I can arsenal. I, to me, this would really change the world. No, it wouldn't be negative. We had decades of peace with the, with the hitherto known NATO alliance. The NATO alliance may continue. America won't leave, but what America might do on or leave uh, against Putin uh, under Trump is unpredictable, and nobody could tell. Um, but uh, Europe is strong enough. We have more people than you. We have probably the same amount of money, if not more. What what we lack is unity, and what we lack is uh, consensus. And we are probably on a long road to develop this. And Trump criticized Europe for not living up to defense budget expectations. This has been ruled out. 2% now is nothing. We need much more. But strategically speaking, Europe has to, to take a stance and to, to transform itself into a credible world power.
and we could do this right the, with, with a bit of goodwill the, and t- yeah. patience. Yeah, the the independence of Europe, the lack of being dependent on the U.S. Uh, makes Europe more of a free player to make its own decisions and chart a future that it wants. And the more Europe tries to do that, then the less important the U.S. elections become. And I think what European leaders are realizing is for the United States elections to be less important, they themselves have to become more important. And that would be good. It would be really great if in the future people weren't freaking out about whatever happens in the U.S. uh, because Europe would be sort of self-contained and powerful in in itself without American help. So anyway. Let, Let me add one thing without being cynical. Without Putin's folly of attacking Ukraine without a strategic plan worth its name, and given the failure and the the virtue and the bravery of the Ukrainian nation to defend themselves, all this would not would never have happened. We would still be discussing the European issues of whether or not uh, a coffee maker will be allowed to keep your coffee warm for more than an hour. This nonsense has to stop. Good. All right. Thank you, Gunter. Happy New Year. We will talk again and do do. a bunch bunch of election uh, updates next year as we go through uh, what is bound to be a very exciting 2024. And to our listeners out there, I just want everyone to know that Chicago and Hamburg will be celebrating their 30-year anniversary next year, and I am producing a 30-part podcast about the history, art, culture, and people of Chicago. So this is under the Chicago Hamburg 30 name, Chicago Hamburg 30. So make sure you subscribe to that. The first episode will come out on January 2nd, Chicago Hamburg 30. I hope everyone listens. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.